Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Hi, Melosaurus. Hello, Anita Dactyl. <laughs> that sounds like a, like a disease. It is. It is. Do you know that the word for when your fingers are fused together is called polydactylism? Yes, actually. Do you, wait. Are your fingers fused together? Well, no. No. That would make being a professional pianist really hard. Yeah, could you imagine? That would be really, really hard. I'd have to, like, invent a new piano and all sorts of things. So we missed last week what was what was up. What was happening? Well, we had Thanksgiving... In America. Wah, wah. <laughs> yes. And that's not why, for me at least, but I went to my friend's funeral and played the piano at it. And it was a lot. So. Yeah. So you were kind of like, I'm out. Yeah. For a little while. And you had like a bunch of stuff to do too, like working type stuff. Yeah. I've been doing some online concerts where it's, I have to do all the arranging and playing and videoing and all that stuff so like one song even though it's a three minute song takes me like days <laughs> or a day Ugh, so a day how was your thanksgiving it was amazing i didn't do anything i sat on my couch and i watched whatever i wanted and there was no food at the house so i didn't eat anything there was no food no i was home alone none none you were yeah mel why didn't you tell me i would have brought you 
a piece of turkey and thrown it at the front door. Ew. Would it, then it would be covered in dirt. <laughs> Maybe it would have, like, stuck to the front door, like, and then it would slime it right down. down. Yeah. My mom did bring me back a little plate of food from where they went to my uncle's house, oh. my aunt and uncle's house. Okay. I didn't know you were all by yourself because I would totally have brought you food. I don't even regret it, though. You know, I, I regret nothing. <laughs> I thought that you always had to do holidays 100% of the time in life. And I learned from one of the first widows that I met that that's not true. And I have to say it was a great Thanksgiving because it just was normal. And I just sat did you there. Play video games? Act, yes, I did, actually. <laughs> um, my Thanksgiving was actually pretty good, too. I was surprised. Um, we always go to my in-law's house. We have since very early on in our marriage. And so we kept on to that. And the funny thing is, is, you know, they asked people not to gather around and not to be with people. But my in-laws babysit my kids. And so it's like we're, we've already spread all of our germs everywhere. So we didn't feel bad getting together. And it's just me and my in-laws. So it was just normal, quote unquote, normal for how it's been for years and years and years, except for no Jason. Yeah, that's a bummer so. of that. So yeah. so pretty stable, would you say? Yeah, I, I have these mixed feelings about this, but it just seems to be getting more normal to not have him there. And so you don't think as much about, like, you should be here kind of things, you know, because you're just kind of used to him being gone. So... But then you're like, oh, when you do think about it. But we still talked about him, um, made kind of little jokes about how we only needed like a one pound turkey because nobody would eat turkey but him anyway. <laughs> you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving were actually a lot harder than just Thanksgiving itself. That's so, so weird how that happens. I feel like that with a lot of yeah. things, like death anniversaries. Um, and things are just going better in general in the last couple of days. Like really, the last couple of episodes. Yeah, I've been like, I hate everybody and everything, and I hate my life. And this couple weeks or the last week has been like, okay, yep, we're okay, we're gonna do this. Okay, so did the writing exercise help? This is how I feel about it. I feel like I have not completed it okay like i fell asleep and i don't think i was done like vomiting yet so does that make sense so the episode that we are about to hear after we're blah blahing is very helpful and anita has been having a hard last while and so our guest offered some advice with something that helped her with anger so this is like this is like a time warp because we recorded that part previously to this part. Yes, like two days so. ago. And now here we are at the beginning. It's very strange. Yeah. So if those of you who follow Anita on Instagram might kind of understand what we're talking about. But Anita did a little writing exercise. And so it had surprising consequences for me. It was not what I anticipated. I just want to point out, though, that you've had a horrible time the last little while, and the last few days are kind of letting up, so maybe it did help you. Yeah. Well, do you know what I really think has helped me? And I almost hate to say it out loud. What? But a couple weeks ago, not even a couple weeks ago, like just a little while ago, I just turned off all of the TVs and the internet, and I was like, you guys can't be on electronics anymore. And I think that has helped in a very weird way. Like ever? They can't be on at all? 
all day. Like the the new the new thing, yeah, pretty much is that they have to earn being on there because before I was using it as like a babysitter slash other parent slash please leave me alone all of the time. Um, but. I don't know. We'll see. It's too soon to say if it, that's really it or if it's just that they're excited about Christmas or or what. So Nice. Well, I'm either way, with whatever the answer is, I'm glad you're feeling a little bit better and more in yeah. control because I've been worried about you. So, Anita, guess what? What? You know that I had a rule, no funerals ever again, but of course, like I alluded to at the beginning of this, I went. Yeah. And not only yeah, went. I want to hear about it. Played at it. And I did not think I would survive. It was so strange. Do you want to hear about it? I do. Okay. We're married now. Okay. I said I do. <gasps> Good. You're stuck with me. Of course, it was the funeral of my friend who died by suicide. So it was an extra, extra, extra sad situation. And he's 28. So no. Yeah. 28. So sad. He also has a fiance, just FYI. So I've been thinking about her a lot. And I was curious about his family situation. I knew his fiance a little bit uh, because she's a photographer and had done some photography for our band and I love her so much. So I've been thinking about her, but it was interesting because a lot of things came up for me, of course. And I was playing tennis with my dad the morning of the funeral and I was such a wreck as far as like energy or trying to like get to the ball. And uh, it was so weird. And I was feeling some of the same feelings that I had on Scott's death week. And then of course the things that were going through my head were, okay, well, this has not happened to you. Yes, there's a death, but you've already been through your person's death. But I think it's always hard for me to know that other people are going through similar things. Cause like, it's so horrible. You don't want other people to feel that, that pain kind of like how I felt with you, Anita, when I found out Jason died. So the thing about playing at the funeral, I of course wanted to be there and help in that way. Just because that's like we were bandmates, right? And who else is going to do it? I would love to like be part of his tribute. So, but the song that they picked, of course, was Amazing Grace. And then it had yeah. that other song with it that um, sometimes is paired with it called My Chains Are Gone. I've been set free. And so it was just like, oh. oh. And the way that I try to learn songs is um, just because I like to follow the singers. And you never know at funerals, sometimes people are crying or they forget when to come in. And so, I want to just kind of know the song inside and out words and music. So I had just had it on loop in my head or in my, on my phone all the way leading up to the funeral. And I'm just thinking how, and this is so sad. How are people going to get through this? And they had a recording of him singing. No. The first verse. That song? Yes. Oh my gosh. So they had that play. And then as he sang his last note, then in real life, then I would come in and play on the piano that gave me like the chills i know right that's, that's how i felt so... all week wow i know it's crazy and then listening to the words i mean amazing grace is always you know such an uh an appropriate song for things like that and yeah. um but then when it got to the my chains are gone i've been set free just knowing how much he struggled with mental illness just made it even more uh sad so i was trying to do my best to honor him and pay tribute to him and support and also keep myself healthy in the brain. Yeah. But it was and hard. compartmentalize it. Yeah. yeah. And I was so worried, like all the way up into the funeral and I got there and it was so weird. It was as soon, it was kind of like what you were just talking about, like things leading up to mm -hmm. the event uh, being worse than when you actually, it arrives. 
I walked in and it was like, as soon as I arrived, I was in like, I don't want to say robot mode, but that's what I call called yeah. it where I just like, yeah. I'm here, I'm here to do a duty. Of course, I'll do anything you want. How can I help? And yeah, you're like emotions at the door. Yeah, exactly. Like, I was surprised. Yeah. Um, and then of course, everybody else there was in so much more pain because they were with him a lot, right? They were his like inner circle. And so a, a lot of sadness. So it's of course not my pain. Um, that's a significant and, but it was sad. It was sad. It was all these big dudes and tattoos and Mohawks that are rockers that were like heavily sobbing and his whole family mm. talked and they were amazing. And, and his fiance was there and I hugged her and I just, the feeling when I hugged her was like, I just know, I know what she's going through for the yeah. most part for as far as the loss goes. And I just feel for her. So this is what I think it is. When you hug somebody, it's like you can look them in the eyes and say, I see you. And I really see you. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like people can be like, I hug you. Like I feel bad for you. But you're like, no, I see you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I know. And it's like, you know, I had hugged a couple people there. Of course, it still was in masks and it was whatever. But nobody felt it felt different. Yeah, it felt and mm. and I didn't have words for it. And of course, I didn't say anything to her about it. And she was there at the funeral doing funeral things and just trying to survive. But I'm just oh, I just felt that connection of I understand. And I like you said, like, I see you and I feel you. Yeah. And uh, and I'm so sad for her. And and also because I have a connection to the that circle I'm trying to help them understand that it's important to reach out. And and I talked to one of my other band members and they said, well, we want to leave some space in case she's not okay. And I said, just don't, please don't do it. <laughs> like keep reaching yeah. out every day, every day. And then I don't know. So it's hard. It's just like trying to, to watch all this go f- from the other side and to help people where I can without overstepping. Kind of like I know we talked about last episode, but for me personally, then I felt stronger leaving because I had done something that I never thought I would do again. Good job, Mel. And so that was weird because my friend is dead. He left a fiance behind. I know it's not my fiance that's died, but now I feel stronger in a, a bit of healing from that. And I don't know. I have mixed feelings because now I know what she's going to be going through. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so fun. She's going to just love it so much. <laughs> okay, maybe that. I was just joking, but <laughs> Yeah. So, do you want to hear about something good that happened to me though, Mel? Yeah. Um one of our listeners contacted me and she and her family came and hung my Christmas lights. Oh. On my house, isn't that nice? Oh my gosh, that's so nice. Yeah, they were looking for like a way to kind of um together as a family give and um, so she, that's what they did. It was super sweet. And they brought me like gifts and they brought you cheese, but you haven't gotten it yet, by the way. Um, thank you, listener. Yeah. It's, um, her name's Janet Cox. Thank you, Janet Cox. Yeah. She told me her whole story and, um, my kids were crazy and they brought their whole family and their, her cute grandkids and it was fun. Aw. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being so kind. Janet, especially to my widow wife, Anita, for when she was in her darkest of dark times of the last week. Because that happened during That was on the day that I, yeah, I was in my anger. That was my anger day. So, 
It was cool. Well, since the holidays are coming up, we've decided to do something. Holidays are hard. We know that. It's hard. And there's some special things that you get to deal with as a widow. And my kids are screaming outside of my bedroom again. But not bad screaming. screaming anita no i'm sorry you can tell the difference i can't i don't <laughs> it comes like when you become... when you become a mother they teach you the screams oh okay they're like this scream is i want attention and this scream means that my brother cut my finger oh my gosh <laughs> okay okay um so it's hard it's hard to deal with the holidays when you have lost somebody because there's some special and unique difficulties that only others in your circumstances can understand. So we are going to get together for a Zoom holiday hang. I wanted to call it a mixer, though. Just kidding. Mel wants to call it a holiday hang, but I want to call it a mixer because that like that word hasn't been used since, I think, the 1950s. Doesn't that mean you have to wear dresses with that are made out of taffeta? Yes, it is required. Well, I am not showing up to that. You have to come. And your sleeves have to be enormous. I can't do it, Anita. Okay, fine. Wear whatever you want, but you do have to wear clothes. Okay, I can do that. So we're going to do it on December 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Whatever that is for all y'all, you get to figure it out for yourselves. Yep. Because we can't. We even tried Googling and then we felt like we needed a geography lesson. It was too confusing. There's too many of you. Yep. And one time we didn't know about the daylight saving situation with Australia. And that had happened before we scheduled something. And we almost ruined our friend Aaron's life or morning. So Because we have daylight savings time and they don't. And so we went off of daylight savings time and she was still on the same time. So it messed everything up. Yeah. So everybody, figure it out. Figure it out. We'll post about it. And then you're going to need to RSVP so we can send out the Zoom link. Because we're not just going to put the Zoom link out for weird people to join. Oh my because gosh. Because maybe they will show up in Taffeta. You guys, speaking of weird people, we have gotten a lot of weird requests for our Widow Wives Club. And that's why I've changed the questions so they seem kind of rude. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> I just want you all to know, it's only for those crazy people. That are trying to take advantage yeah. of widows. We're not being rude to you. We like you. Yeah. Unless you're a w- weird person. Yeah. People think it was a dating site. So now there's a thing that's like, I acknowledge this is not a dating site. Except for we're dating Mel. Well, so that's weird. Yeah, but it's fake dating. We are going to link to that information to where you can sign up and RSVP for our holiday hang slash mixer. Taffeta dress optional. Awesome. Okay. Is it time to shout out our patrons now? It sure is, Anita. Yeah, first we want to thank our dead husbands. We have Katie Coons and David Kelly. Thanks, guys. You're, you guys are great dead husbands. We've got Lori Farrington, Emily Thornton, The Fancy Lady Joy, Jamie Aliota, Christina Scambaco, Shannon Helm, The Oldest Sister, Marjorie Lewis, Wendy Black. Ashley Hahn, Kara Scara, Jenny Taylor, Mi Mamacita, and Mi Mamacita, Karen Cornejo, Rachel Barbosa, Ileana Bell, Anna Tracy, 
Gabe Lozano, Aaron Pozik, Jenny Barrow, Christine Anderson, Diana Becker, Sarah Maurice, just kidding, Sarah Morris. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate your support. We do. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being a friend. Yeah. Golden Girl. Driving down the road back again. Your heart is pure. You're a pearl and a confidant. Woo. And if I threw a party or a mixer, he invited everyone I knew. I don't even know if I'm getting the right words right, but it's fine. I like your improv. If you're not a member of our Patreon already, consider joining so that we can keep the podcast going and check out the Widow Wives Club and answer the mean questions now. And I'm Anita. Wait, how do they join our Patreon, Anita? (laughs) Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash WWDN. And join our Facebook group at Facebook slash whatever. So coming up, we have a super awesome lady who gave us a lot of tips and pointers and amazing stories. And I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And we're two young widows trying to figure out what do we do now? What do we do now? What? Anita. What? Do you even know what is about to happen right I now? Don't. I thought our interview was in five hours, and so I just sat down and have no idea what's going on. I know, and I'm sorry that you're having an angry day. Perfect. But okay. we're going to be talking about anger. Mentally. I know, it's actually perfect. It totally is. Mel, can you please tell me what's happening? Yes. Who's so, here? What's going on? This is my friend, Tessa, and I am going to let her explain about what she does and who she is, and I just think she's the best and the best crazy lady of all time in the best way possible. She loves plants. She's adventurous. She's been through a whole lot of stuff in her life, and her life is dedicated to helping others, which is how I met her. So, Tessa, welcome Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Thank you, ladies. I'm really honored, grateful to be here. Uh, to give you a little bit of background about me, I am a holistic nutritionist and an applied kinesiologist, food is medicine specialist. Um, I see hundreds and hundreds of clients in my private practice, helping them with all types of health ailments and um, helping to heal them in a completely natural way. And part of what happened really quickly in my practice was that I also became 
kind of an unofficial therapist. Um, I get to see people from all walks of life and I always want to create, my intention is always to create a, a healing open space. You know, my office is like Fort Knox. You can say anything and it is sacred inside of those walls. It is always kept private and people know that they can tell me anything. There's nothing that they can say to me that I will judge them for um, because there's so many shadows within us. There's so many sides of ourselves that we don't know how to look at and be with, let alone how to share with others. And so I've always worked to cultivate a space where they can be completely open and completely free and say all the crazy things and, and the angry things and the sad things and the hard things. You know, there's a lot of women that tell me, you know, they hate their husbands and they hate their children and and they don't always hate their husbands and children, but I think all, all women sometimes hate their husbands and children. Um, and, and then they die. Right. And then they feel bad. That and they then they them. feel bad that they were mad at them. And then they don't know how to be with that part of themselves that has that regret and that shame and that guilt. When in fact, all of those emotions are so completely normal. Emotions are nothing but information. And we are so afraid to be with them because we live in a world full of distraction. We live in a world that has taught us to be anything but honest about them with ourselves, let alone with other people. And so I was able to really, really young, um, when I started my practice in my very early 20s, I was able to recognize that in people right away that there was always this undercurrent of things that were affecting their physical health that there were deep emotional roots to the manifestation of a lot of them. And I realized that I was going to have to learn how to hold space in a way that would allow people to go deeper than the surface of the physical, because we, we can only heal so much if we're only dealing with the physical. And so the fastest way to do that with people is to say your own crazy stuff is to share your own wounds is to share your own shadows is to, to show somebody yeah, I know I'm crazy too. And yeah, sometimes I hate my husband. And you know, yesterday I almost burned the house down. No big deal. It happens to all of us. And so, when so Anita's going to be okay. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's going to be okay <laughs> as long as. Do you know what I'm stuck on right now? What? That I didn't know you were like a nutritionist. Oh. And remember how we were just talking about chocolate covered macadamia nuts? Oh, honey, I <laughs> indulge sometimes. I have the rebel in me. So I have to date her. I have to date my rebel shadow constantly or she will take over the world and sabotage everything so what if she already took over the world mm. and then you're only dating brussels sprouts oh you will i've you been will there bad. i've so <laughs> been there anita and what ended up happening when i let the rebel take over um was after really some very hard uh grief that i was unwilling to be with and I, for the first time, let the rebel really take over. And I stopped every healthy thing that I had done for so long. All of the yoga, all of the meditation, all of the prayer, all of the ceremony, all of the kale, all of the Brussels sprouts. All of the kale? Yeah. Stopped it all. I was so angry. I was angry with God. I was angry with the entire universe. And I said, screw this. This is ridiculous. There is none of this has saved me from having to grieve like this. So I don't care anymore. And so I let the rebel take over and very quickly alcohol um, took over my life. 
I come from a long line of alcoholics on both sides. And so um, I know what that looks like. And it's something I had been always very careful with because of that. And I reached a point of so much compounded trauma that I had run from for so long. And the running originally, you know, was really healthy. Hike every mountain, travel to every country, do more service work, do more of my own work, build my business bigger do more volunteer work, do more yoga. But there was so much distraction. I was really just running. And eventually the running and the healthy ways didn't work and I couldn't get out of the grief. And so um, the only thing left that I could see at that point was to numb. And somebody very innocently that, that loved me dearly, a very good friend of mine who'd never seen me have a problem with anything, as far as addiction, she said, you know, t- you need to sleep. I had gone like three weeks without sleeping and at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I probably at some point or I would have been dead, but I felt like the walking dead. Yeah. It was, it was the worst phase ever. And I was staying with her and she said, you know, you need to sleep. So take a couple shots of vodka to take the edge off the anxiety and let's see if we can get you to sleep. And oh man, it worked instantly. And it really quickly became a problem after that. And um, I was in and out of that problem for a couple of years, kept leaving it alone and thinking like, oh, see, I conquered it. Now I can have a drink and I'll be fine because I had never had a problem with it before. But every time I started drinking again, the numbing felt so good, right? The, the not feeling it. Because in that two years that it was off and on, I never did the work. I never went into the shadow sides. I never learned how to be with my grief and my anger and all of the layers that come with that. And so eventually that haunting would come back and the need to numb it would come back. And I was very lucky to get out of it before, you know, you lose everything because a lot of people don't um, get out of that type of thing before they lose a lot, but I'd lost enough and I wanted to heal. I wanted to, I wanted to know if it was possible. Quite honestly, at that point, I didn't believe that it was. I was so pissed off at everything that I just figured, you know, what have I got to lose? The alternative is to die with this disease. And I, you know, I am a true born rebel. So I don't do things in the middle. There was no like, you know, it, it was like drink till you die or deal with it fully and process it fully. And I knew eventually that those were the only two things that I was those were the only two options that I really had and had left. And I was so angry about it. I hated that those were my choices and I'm so grateful for it now. Um, And I'm so grateful that I chose to get help and chose to really start processing the grief and the trauma. So Tessa, I have a question. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think that I, probably knew you during the time that you were struggling with this because I've known you for a long time and worked with you for a long time. And would you consider yourself a high functioning addict? Because I never would have known ever because you showed would show up professionally and like always do your job. Yeah. About that. I was living in like split worlds for the, the times that this was going on. So there was, you know, periods of months at a time that it was drinking heavily And for a long time, for the first couple rounds of it, right, it would go on for three or four months at a time, and then it would stop for months, and then it would start back up for a few months, and then I'd stop again for months, and that went on for about four rounds. And so during the times that I was drinking at first, I was really good at separating it all and, um, you know, never drink on my work days, never drink when I had my child, 
And because I'm divorced, there's a lot of time that I don't have my child. And so I was drinking more and more and more when I was alone, which meant more and more isolation, starting to hide how much I was drinking, but I would stop when I needed to work. And that starts to, so yeah, I was a high functioning alcoholic for sure at first. And it starts to bleed into the other parts of your life because you feel horrible physically. I was so healthy, as you know, I have been a health nut for 20 years and the way I felt physically was so unbelievably awful that even on the days I wasn't drinking, I felt worse than the days that I was. And that's when it started to get really scary because then you start to need the alcohol to function. And so then it was like, I'll just drink a little on the days that I need to do the other thing so that I'm not drunk and, and can still function, but don't feel so crappy. And that's when everything starts to get really, really messed up is when those worlds start to, when you can't separate those worlds anymore. Okay. So you were drinking, but like eating healthy and being all healthy and then drinking. <laughs> yeah. At first. <laughs> all the kale and all the vodka. Yeah, exactly. Vodka, kale. vodka was so the, confusing. The drug of choice. Yeah. It was confusing and it really was so out of integrity which was the hardest part on my spirit really was that, you know, I, um, I tried to be a person of integrity. And so here I was showing up for the people in my practice who my, I love my clients are my heart. And, you know, I, and my son, like showing up for them in, in a way where I can really be with them and be present and hold space with them is the most important thing in the world to me. And you start to not be able to do that no matter how much kale you drink in between. Right. So at first I was able to like drink a lot of vodka and then get back on track. Cause I drank a lot of kale and back to yoga. And then the back and forth eventually became way less. And the two worlds started to combine more and more. And that's when I knew that I, I had to get out of it um, because I was starting to drink to the point that I was blacking out and still drinking. And so I almost died doing that. And I woke up. At the what? Hospital. Yeah, I, I woke had, up in would the have hospital. had no idea. I know most people don't know this side of the story, but. Okay, wait, what year was this? <clears throat> oh, this wasn't that long ago. I just celebrated two years of sobriety uh, in September. So the hospital would have been just two and a half, three years ago. I love that you said you were doing all the right things and like fine doing all the healthy things and you still were not finding what you needed until you got to the alcohol as far as the numbing. And so I think that's so interesting because I mean, of course we are in the grief community and so, and we hear stories every day. Plus we have our own stories. Um, I mean, and of course everybody has hard things. And then I think it's so easy to feel like, okay, well, I feel bad, therefore I should follow the checklist and then I should feel good. And I know for me personally, I'm like, how come the times that I am actually following these like so-called checklists, I still feel terrible. It doesn't make my grief go away. It doesn't make me less angry. It doesn't make me more motivated. And do you think that as a society, those are impeding us with our healing? And like, can you speak to that culturally or yeah. personally? Or what are your thoughts? You just need more kale. <laughs> right. Obviously. That's right. That's like literally what I thought was you just need more good things. And I really mastered the art of spiritual bypassing. I could be the poster child for it because, you know, my life was built uh, around that very thing. And I didn't even know what that term meant at the time, of course. All I knew was that in my head, 
if it looked a certain way, I would be okay. And so my running from my trauma started very young. There was abuse in my childhood that I never learned how to be with. I never learned how to process. And it created a lot of unworthiness. The unworthiness shadow created a perfectionist shadow part of me. And so, so long as I was achieving and succeeding and doing amazing things, then I was okay. I had convinced myself that I was okay enough. And the really scary thing about that is, you know, our whole culture, especially in our generations, is really built on that idea. Um, you know, lots of spiritual bypassing. The New Age movement has done a lot of disservice um, for trauma healing and, and grief healing because, you know, just light more candles and burn more sage and do more yoga and you'll be fine. And it doesn't work that way. And I did all of that times a million for, you know, 15 plus years and it looked really good. And, you know, I had that life that people were always like, I just want your life. You're doing the most amazing things. And I did get to do some really amazing things. And I'm really grateful that at least for a while, I numbed and ran with healthy choices, right? Because when I stopped doing that, it got, it got life-threatening and, um, so I'm grateful that that didn't happen before then, but I'm also grateful that it happened because it wasn't until then that I was finally able to stop all of it and, and deal with it and go into the EMDR therapy and into the shadow work to really do the trauma healing and really learn to be with my grief and my sorrow and my anger. But in all of those years of so much spiritual bypassing, I was super healthy physically. I was convincing myself that I was super healthy mentally, but I wasn't. And any time that I stopped, right, to be still was so uncomfortable for me. And I never really understood why, because I honestly believed that I had, I had healed it all. I had forgiven everyone. I was over it. I was done. I was way past that. I was like, so spiritually evolved. I was so amazing because of all the so amazing things that I was doing that I was way through all of that grief. And it was a huge, dangerous lie. And I couldn't really be still other than sitting in my meditation practice. You know, I had learned to be still there. And once that was done every morning, it was run and go and go and go and go and go and go until it was time to sleep. And anything other than that was really very uncomfortable for me, whether it was constantly reading, writing, hiking, journal, travel, volunteer work, building my practice, seeing clients. Um, it's why I have such a ridiculous amount of education. You know, it's not just because I'm a super nerd. It's mostly because I didn't know how to stop. There was that need to prove that I was okay to myself and to everyone around me. And there was never going to be enough proof because I wasn't okay. And that's why I couldn't stop. I want to say what you're saying and see if I understand the concept. So what you're saying is that you can't just focus on doing good things and think that doing good things will solve the problem. That you have to kind of face whatever the bad thing is and not just try and like wipe it away by doing good things basically. And what was the term that you use? Spiritual? Spiritual bypassing. Bypassing. Define that. It means exactly what you just said. 
you know, that you just focus on the positive. The new age movement is really dangerous in a lot of ways, in my opinion, because of this very thing. Uh, it's mostly built on the idea of spiritual bypassing. Light more candles, do more yoga, wipe it away. Focus on the positive, only think about the positive. It's so incredibly dangerous because you cannot integrate the pain. You cannot integrate the anger. You cannot integrate the fear and the sorrow, the guilt, the shame, the grief, if you only focus on the positive. And no amount of focusing on the positive will eliminate those things. What happens instead is those things start to throw tantrums. And, you know, it's like the wounded inner child that freaks out at you and is like, I need you to look at me. I need you to be with me. I need you to see me, witness me, hold me, hear me. And there's no amount of only thinking positive that will eliminate it. And so you have to learn to hold it. You have to learn how to look at it. And our culture is teaching anything but that, right? There's nothing but distraction. There are so many ways to make it look really good and avoid all of it. And there's no freebies you have to learn to be with it. You have to learn how to how to hold it. I love this because I, I have had people in my life that have suffered things like abuse in their childhood. And they may have been told like, okay, now I think there are a lot more resources and things are kind of being talked about more. But when you grew up in a certain generation or before a certain generation, it seemed like the topics were, well, we don't know how to handle it, so don't talk about it. And the way that you need to deal with it is it's all on you, the victim's fault, and you need to do good things for others. And so I've met some people that were like in their adulthood at, at this point, and, and their habits that they got in was just, it's it was hard because it's like, well, they're being very kind to other people and they're very giving and doing all these things, but our they doing it because they actually care or are they doing it to fill a void? And so how long can you do that before you burn out and it comes back to bite you? Right. And so it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. And and I know with grief too, a lot of people told me, well, you just need to do nice things for others. Service, 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 service. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I actually, I am similar to you, Tessa, where it's just like, I just keep going, keep going, keep going and learn all the things and do all the things. But I could not get past a car accident and a dead husband at the same time. And it forced me to totally stop. And and honestly, it was the only thing that helped me to start looking inside and changing. And so I'm grateful for that. But it's hard now to hear when people just want to blanket and say, well, just stay positive. Just think positive thoughts. And it's like, well, that's just a piece of the puzzle. So I love that we're talking about this. Um, and it's good to be positive, but, uh, you know, to take stock of the shadow stuff that you're talking about as well. So how did you move through this stuff? Well, there's that the idea of that pendulum swinging, right, where you if you just think positive thoughts, the pendulum still has to swing and you can only think and be happy and positive to the certain level, to a certain height that you're willing to swing the pendulum the other way. So if you just ignore it, you don't allow the swing into the dark sides and then you can only swing so high as well. So that means that you're not going to ever allow your full expression of joy, happiness, real joy, deep joy, profound joy, if you've never learned how to be with the shadows. And of course, everyone wants to say, you know, just 
just be positive and just do service. But why? Why do they say that? And it's because they're uncomfortable. We've never been taught, at least in our culture, we've never been taught how to hold the space for others in grieving. And you know that very well, Mel, you and I have talked about that, where the, the most inappropriate things people would say, they only mean well, but like how horrific in some cases it is to have to receive what they need to say for them to feel better about your grief. And so when you're courageous enough to be like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not only going to do that. There's a time and a place where I need to help bring myself out of this space for a minute and experience some good. I'll focus on service for a while and I'm coming back here to also process this grief, right? There's a time and place for it, but to only do one side and to feel the pressure from society that if you don't, you're making everyone else super uncomfortable is awful. And it makes us afraid of ourselves and it makes us afraid of each other. And so when you're courageous enough to say, no, I'm not doing that, I'm going to do the work. At first you scared the living crap out of everyone around you because you're looking at all of the things that we've all been taught to push away. And to really do the work, you have to pick it up. You have to like pick up the fear and you have to hold it close to you and you have to say, oh my goodness, this is what you look like. This is what you feel like. This is what you need to say. And it's ugly. It's uncomfortable and and terrifying in some cases. And, you know, in our mind, it's going to be so much worse than it's actually ever in reality. It's certainly uncomfortable, but there's this incredible healing process that begins when you start to learn to look at the dark sides. Dark and light always coexist. We all have shadows within us and we tend to think of them as bad and they're not bad. No emotion is bad. They're all simply information. And all of our traumas, you know, have roots to them and they come from things that were very hard and things that we didn't know how to process and weren't given the tools to process. And once you start to really realize that the the shame and the guilt parts start to heal very quickly. And those were the parts I was the most afraid to be with. And they were the parts that I thought I would never be able to heal. And those were the parts that started to heal the fastest, because as you really look at all of it, why am I angry? And and journaling is for me, the most important part of all this, the, the process of writing it down pen to paper, you know, why am I angry? And there were so many layers and levels as to why I was angry. I was angry about the abuse in my childhood. I was angry about the inability to process it before I I became an alcoholic and caused other problems in my life and had to live now with that shame and guilt. And I was angry at my divorce. You know, this was five years that this started after my divorce. It's been seven or eight years now, Um, but I never processed the trauma from my divorce. It was very traumatic, very sudden, very hard on me. And I lost every dream that I had for my life at that time. And and for my child who was not even two when it happened. And it was such an incredibly fast shift. And I was so afraid of how angry I was at him and angry at myself and angry at the loss that Well, and I was afraid because I had been raised in a way where anger, you know, was dangerous and I was really afraid to be with the anger. That was the emotion that I really couldn't at the time uh, even dare to step into. And so. Also, you're a woman. Yes. And so being a woman that's angry is different 
at times than a man. Absolutely. Right? At least yeah. culturally or societally. Yeah. We're not supposed to be angry. We're supposed to just be soft and loving and nurturing and hold the space and like push it away and don't look at it because you got to take care of everyone else. It's a big lie. Be grateful that you had your marriage. <laughs> Don't be sad that you're divorced now. At least you had it. Yeah, at least Blah. you got to experience love. Yeah, you just want to puke on people. Because at the time... <laughs> I just, and that would be kale puke. Right? And kale puke is gross really puke. Gross with vodka. With, with kale vodka. At the time, yeah, kale. it would have been a combo. Oh, man. I, I really was so guilty of doing that to myself it was bad enough that there was people saying that to me I wasn't the person saying it the most I was the person that was like yeah because people were trying that were close to me they were trying to help me go there they knew that there was an undercurrent going on of like serious grief and anger and I remember my best friend at the time saying to me like you can't just run from this you you can't just keep running and I was like ah it's fine. At least I got to experience such a great love. And at least we have a beautiful child. And at least, you know, we'll be, I believe we'll be able to be friends one day. There were so many excuses that I had for, you know, bypassing it and, and pushing it away. And it sure sounded really good, but it was so dangerous. And I ran harder than ever for the next five years until the running, until something else happened and the running didn't work anymore. So finally, I, I dated a while later. I met a man who lived in South Africa who he and I had such an incredible soul connection and we had the most Anita's face. <laughs> did you see her face when you said that? <laughs> She's like, wait, wait, wait. What? Anita did? Oh, I missed it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a lot. That, that was the thing that compound that was the final piece of trauma that made me unable to run anymore. Yeah. So, and to not go too crazy into it, the, the reality is that it became a huge loss in my life. There was another loss, right? And I had still not compounded um, or so it compounded the loss of the unprocessed trauma for my divorce and the unprocessed trauma for my childhood he and I loved each other greatly and our opportunity to be together and for him to come to America was taken away from us. There was nothing that we could do about it. This was after two years of traveling the world, doing service work together. Um, he came here uh, a few times, met my son. We were planning to have him live here. It was an incredible, powerful, deep soul connection, a spiritual connection like I had never experienced. And um he did not handle that well. I didn't handle that well. And the way that he showed up in the loss um, and becoming suicidal and, and the many layers of pain that that was for both he and I. Wait, he became suicidal? Yeah. Um, and it, it destroyed me. Honestly, I felt such a huge level of guilt and shame. And I began to feel that I was dangerous for for men and dangerous you know my husband my ex-husband still hadn't moved on and um i had had that story back, back as far as i can remember as a teenager of of men not doing well uh when it didn't work out and it destroying them or destroying their lives then becoming addicts uh then becoming suicidal and i started to feel very dangerous and like i was not going to ever be able to be with anybody because I was going to harm them. Well, first of all, you can't help being so amazing that they can't live without you. <laughs> that they're devastated. One time my well, sister- thank you. I have like sort of similar situations with dating. And one time my sister was drawing a picture of me water skiing 
But what was in my wake was a bunch of guys' bodies. And she's like, look at all the men she's leaving in her wake. So, I mean. Oh, my gosh, Amy. I know. (laughs) Yes. Well, I want to know why he couldn't come to America. It was really the most beautiful relationship that was all over social media. We were literally traveling the world. We were in Indonesia. We were in the islands of Madagascar, um, in Mauritius, all over South Africa, doing service work, working with orphans, um, you know, traveling somewhere amazing together every few months, meeting in an exotic place and doing amazing things. And the whole, my whole tribe, my whole social media world was watching and so uh, like, into the relationship and so involved and so supportive of it and so excited for me. And, and those close to me, everyone in my practice and my friends and family were so happy to see me move on from my divorce. And um, so when it didn't work out, which was because his mom had a stroke and, um, and then was diagnosed with, I believe it was Parkinson's, or at least they thought at the time that all this was happening. And in South Africa, it's not like here in America where there's, you know, great homes and, and places where she can be taken care of um, only if you're, you know, have millions of dollars. It, and he's the only living family member. And so he had to take care of her. And um, we can't immigrate her here because of her age and they don't immigrate them with those kind of health problems. And so, um, yeah, there was, you know, he had to stay and take care of her, of course. And so there, it was out of our hands and I couldn't continue the relationship because my son at the time was so young that he couldn't understand the coming and going it was starting to get really hard on me and on him. I would be gone for three weeks at a time and, and he was coming to America as well and spending a month at a time with us and my son would get super attached to him and then he would disappear for many months and he was too young to understand it and it was something that, you know, his mom was young enough, she could have lived 20 years with that disease. And um, I couldn't do that to my son anymore. I couldn't do that to me anymore to continue a relationship that I had no idea if we would ever be able to, to fully be able to, to be with, to be, to have, and to, to live a life together. And we tried for many, many months to let go. And it was very painful. And that is when the drinking started. That is when the when I realized I had to, it was killing both of us not to, um, I had to give us some time to heal. And I said, you know, we cannot speak right anymore for, for now. I want to be the person to reach out. Please don't reach out to me anymore. I was trying to do the right thing for both of us, but it was killing me. And that's when the anger became something I could no longer there was not enough mountains to hike. There was not enough yoga to do. There was not enough candles to burn to stop that pain and stop that anger. I was so angry with God. I was angry with the entire world that we couldn't be together and that that opportunity had been taken from us. And then to see it devastate him to the level it did made me angry and afraid, afraid of myself. Okay, here's my question. And this might be a big, huge question. Actually, I have two questions. The first question is, is I hear people say all the time, they have to do the work. What does that mean? Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm like, there's this concept of work. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. So what it was for me was EMDR therapy and shadow work. So EMDR therapy is one of the most well-researched things for trauma. 
It's um, eye rapid movement desensitization. I might've said that wrong, but basically if you're familiar with tapping at all, emotional freedom technique, it's the same thing, but done through the movement of the eyes. And so therapists have to do it. They have to have special, you know, extra training to do it. And, um, you know, I was so hopeless at this point. I mean, I just would have tried anything, but I remember telling this therapist, I went to a new therapist because I had, I had a therapist. I think everyone should have a therapist. I had a therapist I saw off and on for a long time, uh, you know, over a decade. And I was really good at tricking him and like seeming fine. Right? <laughs> I had mastered the skill <laughs> of looking like everything was fine and sounding like everything was fine. And, and even to the point that I was deluding myself and, um, so I had to start over with somebody and I was so raw at that time. I was so messed up. I was so emotionally in, in such turmoil that I just laid it all out. I like word vomited all over her in the first session and was just like, I like need help, like seriously. And I don't believe that it's possible. And I think that your profession might be a joke and uh, <laughs> no amount of talking is going to fix this. You so you better that? have something better. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was, I was hardcore, man. I was like super honest. I was like, listen, no, I've done this therapy thing before. Like, and it didn't help at all. And I'll probably be able to trick you and I'll probably lie to you. And so I, I mean, I laid it all out in that first session of what she should look for, what are going to be the, the signs that I am bypassing. And I told her how good I was at doing it and that I needed her to help me stop and that I didn't believe that it was possible and, but that I had nothing to lose. And so I might as well try. So the poor woman can you even imagine <laughs> she's so amazing. Um, so she and I began the journey uh, of doing some EMDR therapy. And at the same time, I started to get introduced into shadow work, which really the timing of that was divine. I know that it was a gift because um, the two go hand in hand so well, and it really helped me to do the work. So the actual work being showing up for therapy and doing all the homework she was giving me. And at the same time, learning, which a good EMDR therapist is doing shadow work with you. And then I also hired a very intense, expensive, amazing mentor in shadow work, Derek Rydell, who is like famous in his field. And I went to his retreat and met him and, um, decided to sign up to do one-on-one -on -one with him. Cause you know, I only go hardcore. There's no, there's nothing in the middle. So <laughs> you might as well hire the guru and pay a fortune. And because it was do or die, right? At this point in my life, it was do or die. And actually by the time I hired Derek, I had been probably a year into therapy and doing shadow work on my own. And so um, I took it. What's shadow work? Okay. So shadow work, Shadow work is the process of being and integrating with those, the, the dark sides, you know, the fear, the grief, the anger, the shame, the guilt, and it's learning how to look at them, hear them, be with them and allow them their rightful, righteous place in your life. And at first I thought that meant like healing them so that they would go away and I remember my mentor laughing at me and he was like, yeah, they're never going away They're We have to integrate them. You need to take them with you. They're always going to be a part of you. And I was so pissed off. I was like, no, I know. I don't want that to be. I don't like those parts of me. And he was like, well, that's the problem. That's why they can't integrate is because you still dislike them and you're still holding this belief that they're bad. 
You know what's so funny? I have noticed in my grief journey, when I'm angry, that's when I get stuff done. And then I'm mad because I'm like, why do I have to feel mad to get stuff done? Can I find another way? And it's so... Oh, I'm so glad you said that. This is really important, Melanie. This is... This was the big turning point in shadow work for me as he told me before we're going any further into the integration with them, I need you to understand the gifts that they brought you. What are the gifts of your shadows? So we all have different types of shadows, but there's some, some key big ones that most people will have at least one or two of, and mine are the perfectionist shadow and the unworthiness shadow. And so I'm always trying to prove my worthiness, hence the overachiever in me. And I'm a perfectionist in it as well. And that's from the trauma of my childhood, the feeling that, you know, I was never going to be good enough. And so I very young started that journey of overachieving in every area of my life and always getting all the awards and all the recognition. And it was the only time I felt like um, I was seen and of value. And so he helped me recognize in doing the shadow work. The first stage with him was to do the work of finding out what the gifts that they brought me are. And so the gift of those shadows, one of the gifts is that it really overdeveloped the masculine energy in me. So I'm very good at taking action. I'm very good at making lists, getting things done, achieving goals, right? Building, seeing something through, taking lots of action. And that is because of that trauma, that trauma, the way that I protected myself from the trauma in my childhood was to be the overachiever and learn how to get things done and learn how to take care of myself. And because of that, I have built a beautiful business that I love and cherish every single day. I've never worked a day in like 20 years. I mean, I love it so much. And because of that, I, you know, own a beautiful home and I I have a a beautiful life. Um, I have captured a lot of, of amazing memories and moments and opportunities because I'm a doer. I'm very good at doing and getting stuff done. And so, yeah, that can be out of balance sometimes. Like we were talking earlier where you only do that. That's the masculine out of balance, not allowing any space for the feminine. Um, but it's a gift. That's an incredible gift um, that I'm very good at accomplishing things and seeing tasks all the way through and, and you know, getting things done, making it happen. And so that was a really big part of doing the work is to start to see why the, how the shadows serve me, why I love them. What am I grateful for about them? So that I was no longer so afraid of them. And so that also I understood finally with doing that piece of the work that I was never going to get rid of them. It was just going to be a process of integrating them so that everything was more in balance. And so in the work, in the shadow work in doing the work is a lot of journaling. So, you know, so let's talk about as an example, um, processing the angry shadow. So, because that's the one that was super uncomfortable for me and none of them are comfortable at the beginning, but that one was really hard. And I was super afraid of it, right? Because anger is explosive and feels dangerous. And I thought that if I let it out, then it would take over. And then I would be like my abuser and I would not uh, possibly get out of it. And I genuinely didn't know what it would mean to really allow the anger. And so it started with writing a letter uh, to my abuser. And it started with 
uh, you know, like automatic writing. So write as fast as you can. Don't stop to read it. You're scribbling it. No typing. It needs to be pen to paper. And um, when you automatic write, when you're writing that quickly, you you allow your conscious mind to shut down and your subconscious can take over and you can really say at that point what needs to be said. And so even though I thought um, I knew what would come out, there was a whole lot more that came out and it was 19 pages long and I stopped only because I couldn't physically write anymore. My hand hurt and stepped away for a while, came back and read it. And it was a lot of swear words and a lot of just, you know, big, angry FUs and bombs one after another. And as I continued reading through this letter, um, the anger with myself showed up, which I didn't expect to show up that soon, but I was angry with myself. I was angry with myself that I had bailed on myself, that I had never held space for that little girl who was terrified all the time and who never felt good enough. And so you know, it was already showing up in the work that some of the grieving was being allowed to come because anger is the mask for more fear and more grief typically. And as I read through that part, I just began to sob and um, to really understand that there was this little girl in me who was afraid of me. She wasn't just afraid of what had happened. She was afraid of me bailing on her. She was afraid that I would just keep running. And so we continued doing lots of different types of anger exercises between my therapist and, and the shadow work that I was doing. And, and it looked a lot of different, amazing ways. Really, there was times where my therapist would say, I want you to sit. And because uh, I was having nightmares, horrible nightmares of the love that I lost in South Africa. And he was haunting me. And then that was like bringing nightmares about my divorce and nightmares about my childhood. And it was just, my sleep was messed up for a really long time off and on through all of this. And she said, you know, your, your brain's trying to process the trauma. And if you don't learn to be with some of those memories in the waking hours are going to haunt you in your sleep. And so she said, I need you to sit down and I need you to bring up some of your most favorite memories. And you're not allowed to meditate. You're not allowed to do anything but stare at the wall. Be still, stare at the wall. While you allow yourself to remember some of these you know, amazing memories that you have with him. And I was like, listen, crazy pants. I'm not doing that. <laughs> you are out of your mind. I think I told her that for like three or four solid weeks. I kept going back. She's like, did you do it? And I was like, no, because <laughs> you're nuts. I'll die. I remember telling her I will probably die. I will probably stop breathing. I, I can't do it. I cannot go into those memories. They are so painful for me. And um, I just, there was no way to fathom it at the time. And she was like, okay, but we can't go any further. She finally said to me, there's no point in you coming back until you do it. You need to do it if we're going to keep working together. And I was like, okay. She said, I'll just do it for three minutes the first time. And, and I did. And it was so painful that it made me so angry. So right away, the anger came up with it. And that's because it's the mask, right? Anger, as dangerous as it feels, is way safer than the full level of feeling that grief. At least that's the lie that we tell ourselves, right? None of them are unsafe, but the, the pain was becoming so intense that the anger took over and I freaked out and I got up and I ran and I don't run. That is the thing you will not catch me doing is running. I don't like it. I like my joints. I want to keep them. Don't run. Oh, you and Anita I, are not the same. 
I either run or need I envy it. I think it's amazing. I run away from my problems. Like, actually, I put on my shoes and I see if I can run away. Like, she's in a running magazine. Like, that's for on the cover. (laughs) She's a triathlete. (laughs) Well, I can understand the running from your problems, because, like the physical running, because it was the only thing I could do. I, I got up. And I ran outside and I ran for uh, probably well over a mile and like full speed ran. And I'm not a runner. So like, I don't know how that even happened. I ended up back in my front yard. I fell down in my front yard. I could, I was like, you know, covered in sweat and barely could breathe. And I just laid there and screamed. So you could imagine if you were my neighbor, right? Yeah. So here's the crazy girl. They're She's already like, crazy. We need to call yeah. somebody. <laughs> Uh, yeah should we call oh my gosh and the poor people they'd already seen me taken away by an ambulance before this right and so I don't know if any of them actually ever saw that but I started screaming in my front yard and that led to me starting to fall and I was able to have my first really intense cry like deep feel the pain be with the pain mourn I mourned him I mourned the loss of him I mourned the loss of what we had shared and that I had in a way I had not been able to do before then and so I started to do that most every day was bring up more memories, sit with them. And I could do it a little longer and a little longer and the anger would come every time. And so rather than have that dumb conversation that we have with ourselves, which is, oh, but you shouldn't be angry about this. These are beautiful memories or you shouldn't be angry about this because it's just the mask. They're all just information and they're all a necessary part of the process. So I learned through direction from my therapist and my shadow work mentor to let the anger have its voice. So when it would come up, I would say, what do you need? Do you need to say, what do you need to do? And I would do things like throw paint. I built 72 by 72 canvas and I would throw paint, literally buckets of paint with huge paintbrushes. I have an art shop. I'm very lucky. I have a huge art room. So I have a space where I can throw paint and paint all over the walls and all over the ceiling and the windows and the canvas. We come over when we're mad. Seriously, you can. And I would break dishes. I would go to the Goodwill and I would buy 20 cent dishes and I would come back. I would channel up the emotion, right? I would think of the things that would allow it. I would ask anger to be with me. I would say, I'm here with you. I honor you. I understand you need your voice. I'm here to help process this part of me. And once it would come, I would break dishes, right? In a controlled space in your garage where it's really easy to clean because anger is mean, loud, explosive, means maybe the wrong word, but it's loud, it's explosive, it's intense. And if you allow it to be those things and in a way where you're cultivating the space where you can do that safely, then it doesn't show up in other ways and relationships and in road rage and in things where you end up sabotaging other things. I'm giving it its voice. I'm doing the work of letting it be part of it. Okay. That was going to be my question. I'm glad you said that because I'm thinking about when anger pops up for me and it's generally with my kids and it does scare me because I, it makes me act in a way that I don't want to act. Do you know what I'm saying? And um, so I'm thinking to myself like, no, I don't want the anger to come. How do I honor my anger in a healthy way so that it doesn't show up in an abusive way? Right. Quite honestly. Well, and I think it's most moms big, big fear. One of our big fears is like, I don't want to yell at my kids. I don't want to be mean, but kids are mad. I mean, (laughs) yes, it's just like the hardest, most amazing thing in the world. But it is the most difficult job ever. And no one told you that it was going to be the most difficult job ever. So I think a lot of us felt blindsided. Like, why didn't they come with a manual? Where's the manual for the kids? Right. And as soon as you figure out one stage, they shift. 
And so at least in my experience with my son, who just turned nine, like every time I feel like I've got this stage figured out, he becomes a new person. He He's evolving. He's a new version of himself. And I've got to figure it out again. So I think we're always feeling inadequate, unequipped. And also those of you with multiple kids, I mean, you're pulled in so many different directions. And so you're a constant chef, nanny, cleaner, entertainer, you know, it's the most insane thing ever and and incredible, but so incredibly hard. I don't know a mom that's not angry. Most of the women I see in my practice are, most of my clients are women and most of them are moms and they're all angry and they're all afraid of their anger. And And now they have dead husbands in our world. So then there's no one to co-parent with. Right. And how angry would you be about that, right? It's got to be <laughs> really <mine>. angry. <laughs> I was yeah. I was her co-parent the be, other day. Yeah, I'm to, not very helpful. I had to text Melanie to be my co-parent. <laughs> I was like, "Good, I'm glad you can do no, that." It wasn't that helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I never told you I would be a good step <laughs> no. fake but mom. She, I was like, "What am I going to do about this?" And she's like, "Well, maybe you need to make your daughter an." eye appointment like that was the extent of that and I was like thank you that's what I needed to hear okay it's fine I'm freaking out about something and maybe I just need to make an eye appointment okay sorry and really what you probably needed Anita was just to freak yeah. out more than anything you knew what to do you would have eventually yes. done whatever you need no to sometimes do. you just need to like talk to people about it and just be able to yeah. be like this sucks then, you know I'm annoyed that I have to is, do this yeah okay yeah okay but I'm still I want you to continue to talk about how we honor our anger, but don't make our kids traumatized. So continue. So the key is that angry is, as with all emotions, necessary and needs to be looked at as righteous and holy. And it needs to have its rightful place in your life. Otherwise, it will come out with yelling at the kids, you know, punching holes in walls. I know a lot of very generally easygoing people who've punched holes in their walls in front of their kids because they just eventually explode. That makes me feel so There's no much freebie. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that you probably have guilt about that are so completely normal that every mom is telling me. You know, I've had so many moms finally just like when they realize they really are safe to share anything with me. They're like, I really like sometimes I have uh, visions of like running over my husband. And when he comes home from work and he's like, why isn't dinner ready? And doesn't even recognize that, you know, I just did all of this and this and this all day. And then they say that um, to, on accident to somebody like you guys who's lost it. And then they feel like the, they lost their partner and they feel like the most horrible person in the world. And I'm like, okay, but all these things are true. The person who lost them, that's hard for them to hear. And the fact that you feel that way sometimes is completely normal. Both of those things are true and you didn't mean any harm in it, but also the person who lost their husband also probably felt that way sometimes. Right. And so it's a normal part of the process where eventually it explodes into, if you can't say those things out loud and you can't honor that it's a completely normal way of feeling anger in general at your kids, at your husbands, at your parents, at your friends, at your coworkers, then there's no freebies. You can only suppress it and push it down for so long. It is eventually going to come out in an unhealthy way. And then you have to process now also the shame and the guilt about the unhealthy way, the hole in the wall, the inappropriate things said that really hurt somebody, the name calling, right? The, the whatever the many ways and layers that it shows up. And so realizing that you're not perfect. Oh, and no, and thank goodness, like how boring. Oh, I don't want to hang out with that person. Ew. Nobody does. 
because nobody is that person. And the people who look that way, you know, I looked like I had the perfect life to everyone. And people used to always say that to me. And I was really afraid to share with my tribe that um, I needed, that I had gotten sober and that I even needed to, and that I had gone through a really dark time. And I resisted it for a good while, almost a year. And I finally listened to, to spirit asking me to do it. And what ended up happening was the most beautiful thing in the world, because what it did was it made me even more accessible to everyone. Everyone who already shared so much with me began to crack open in a completely different way. They were allowed to be more vulnerable because I was no longer on this really dangerous pedestal that we put ourselves on and each other on and we become inaccessible. And so I've been able to help people heal at a level and, and be with people through their healing process at a level that would have never been possible had I not been that open and honest about my own pain. Yes, I no. was going to ask you this because you mentioned you are a doer. And when a lot of our widow friends or us or even non-widows are doers and they'll have something happen in life that will derail them, like a death or a divorce or just anything, whatever. Um, how... Do you sit with that as a doer when that part is broken? How do you accept needing help and all of those things that go along with it? Well, for a lot of us doers, we don't do it until we're forced to. You can do it before then. It's just that most of us will keep doing until we can't keep doing. So in your case, you had two traumas, right, that compounded, that came within such a close window of each other that you physically couldn't keep doing anymore. And you were forced to sit, and, and to start doing the work on the healing in a different way to, to be with the pain. And in my case, it took 20 years. Well, it took a lifetime. Um, but as an adult, you know, like almost 20 years of adulthood until enough trauma compounded that I could not literally keep doing anymore. And it doesn't have to be that way. But unfortunately, for a lot of doers, it is that way. There has to be kind of a, a point of rock bottom before we're willing to do the work. And I would hope for people that they don't wait for the rock bottom because the work is so beautiful. It's so much easier than you think it's going to be. And it's not easy. Nothing worth it is easy, but it's not nearly as hard as it, as it seems like it's going to be. And it has unbelievable gifts with it. When I have learned to, so, so Anita was saying, you know, how, how do I learn then to be with the singer? And, and it's a matter of learning to be with it proactively. So one of the most beneficial things for people to start processing anger is that automatic writing process is to write a letter to your kids or, or to the universe, to God, to how, how, however you want to label it, to tell them how pissed off you are and how much anger you're feeling. The letter is not meant for anyone to see. It's going to be for you. And that means it's safe to say all of the terrible, ugly, nasty things, right? That are only pieces of the truth. There's only a portion of you that sometimes hates your kids. You also always love your children. It's not or, it's and. And we tend to think in or, like it's this or this, and it's this and this. It's this is really hard and I really hate it sometimes. And I am super resentful and angry with the entire universe and every molecule in it that I am doing this alone. And some days it makes me want to, you know, do really bad things and say really bad things. And these are the things I would say and do if I allowed that to be fully unleashed and put it on paper, paper and make yourself see it. And it sounds so terrifying, but it's actually such a release. You will feel space inside of you be opened up. And you'll also learn in that very first time of doing that, that 
it's not as scary as you thought, which means it won't own you the way that you fear that it will. Yes. So I think that this question fits in right now. I think there's a fear that if we open up that door that we're feeding it. And so it's going yes. to grow. So is that mm-hmm. false? It's false. And it's one of the most dangerous lies that there is. It's one of the big ways to keep yourself away from doing it, right? That's the spiritual bypassing right there. The just think positive. So you don't feed the monster. The monster is there already, right? So if you're living in this time and you don't have some unprocessed trauma, you're like, you know, the 0.0001%. So for the rest of us, there is a monster, right? That we think is a monster, that is there and there is no freebie. So if you don't look at the monster and you don't learn to love it and cherish it and understand it and listen to it and be with it, then you are feeding the monster. And instead of it being allowed to be processed in a healthy way, it's going to process one way or the other, that anger is going to come out one way or another. And so you might as well take time out of your day to create space for it. When you proactively say, I'm going to allow this emotion, I'm going to learn to be with it, I'm going to let it say whatever it needs to say, and then I'm going to ask what it needs me to do to feel fully heard, then it doesn't sabotage the rest of your life. But it's there no matter what. And so the there's only so long that you can repress and do and run and go and and you know all and drink and whatever it be, all of the ways of running and numbing from it. And none of them ever, ever, ever get rid of it. And when you turn around and finally look at it and face it and you say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn to be with this part of myself. I'm going to learn to hold space with this, to love this part of myself, this part that I think is ugly and terrifying. I'm going to figure out how to love it and and to be with it. It becomes, you, you see that the monster is actually really just the broken parts of you. It's the parts of you that hurt the most. And anger is just the mask for it. And so when I faced that monster, I that I was so afraid of, I was so afraid of that angry monster. And when I faced it, it was the, the little girl who never felt good enough, who was terrified that she was wrong and bad in every way. And she was so broken. She was so heartbroken and she was so afraid and It took her a while to trust me. I had to process the anger to really get there. So I kept having to show up for the anger and the fear, which was the throwing the paint, the breaking the dishes, the climbing to the top of mountains and screaming, doing what's called lion's breath screaming um, at the top of my lungs, letting it have rage, right? Because rage is part of anger and rage is the part of anger that we're the most afraid of. And rage was the most beautiful thing ever to, to be with because you will feel you have space inside of you. It's taking up so much more space than you know until you let it out. And screaming out that rage was so powerful for me that when I was done, I literally felt like I floated down that mountain. Like I, and it was the most ugly, insane screaming. I didn't even know I could make those sounds. Like it was real crazy. And uh, did you take throat lozenges to soothe your throat? I needed to. I mean, it was like, yeah, it hurt literally afterwards. And I sobbed, I laid on the ground and sobbed afterwards and they were the happiest, most incredible tears of my life um, because it created all of this room. 
Um, and so all of the stuff that I thought I had been ignoring and just be positive and don't look at the monster and don't be with the anger and don't, don't do that. Cause it'll take over. It had taken over in ways I'd never even known until it started to be released. It didn't have to take up all this space inside of me because it started to trust me. That part of me started to trust that I would show up for it. And so it didn't have to sabotage anything anymore because daily I was coming to it and, and being with it and writing it down and processing what I was really thinking. And this included everything from journaling every day to, I hate doing this. This is making me crazy. At the beginning, there was a lot of like, I have no idea if this is going to work. And I'm angry that I even have to do it. And I'm angry that I have to be sober. And I'm angry that I have to be telling people this. And I'm sick of writing this stupid shit down. And I mean, it was like every single thing you could ever think of put on paper. And it didn't take long of just continuing to be honest with what I was angry about and looking at it and being with it until it allowed me access to the grief and to be with the, the fear, the grief, the sorrow, the loss. And there was my inner child who for, you know, she didn't really trust me. And that part was hard for me because I was like, okay, hey, well, I feel all this room now. I have all this space. I've learned that the big scary monster that I was the most afraid to be with it wasn't the monster after all. That's who it was. It was the, it's the broken little girl in me. So now that I feel safe and I trust the process of being with the anger, now I want to sit with her. I want to bring her back. I want to integrate that part of me next. And she didn't trust me. All I had done was run and run and run and my whole life from her. And so it took not a long time, but a couple weeks. Um, if I remember right, it was just under two weeks of sitting every morning and in meditation and prayer and just speaking to that part of myself and saying, I'm here, I'm ready. I'm, I'm willing, I'm waiting for you. I will come back and I will be here as long as it takes. And she was like, whatever, mm -hmm. you're just going to eventually be like, uh, and then you're going to think every positive thought and you're going to claim every single mountain. She was terrified to come. And then it would hurt so much that I bail on her. Right. And so I, every day I showed up and she eventually came little by little and the, that integration with her, that, that coming to be with her again, that experience of feeling her surrender into my arms, feeling that part of me surrender and just grieve and cry at what was lost um, was so powerful and so, so, so beautiful. And it was safe. And that was the thing as I never thought it would be safe. I thought I would get stuck in it and lost in it and I would never get out of it. Yes. So this whole time you've been talking, I've been thinking about um, two experience slash thoughts. Um, one is that I have never felt safe talking to my therapist, even about my deep, dark, child-hating secrets. Because inside of me, I'm scared that they're going to be like, you're an abusive mom. I'm going to call DCFS on you. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm just thinking to myself, like, mm -hmm. I've never been completely open with my real dark, awful thoughts and feelings because I'm scared that mm -hmm. somebody's going to be like, oh, you can't have your kids. Even though, like, there's a part of me that's like, that would be best, actually, if somebody would come and take them away, which is another, <laughs> like, deep, dark thought. You know what I'm saying? Like, one of my sure. deep, dark thoughts is my sure. kids would be better off not with me. You know what I'm saying? Which is devastating, but freeing at the sure. same time. And the other thing is, yeah. is I remember one time being in a session of therapy and um, just complaining, just saying it shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't have to do this. My kids shouldn't be like this. You know, I shouldn't have to. This shouldn't be how it is. 
And I remember my therapist's response just shut me down. And I was so annoyed by it. And it didn't shut me down in a good way. Like, I felt like I was just kind of trying to go to those places that were bad, you know. She was like, well, it doesn't really sound like you've accepted your reality. And I was like... WTF! <laughs> That's how I felt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because I was like, yeah. I have accepted my reality, but Ugh. can't my, I accept my reality at the same time? I still feel like all of this is bullshit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And that's the key right there. Right. And that's, that's terrible therapist in my opinion <laughs> and, and, and traditional talk therapy, quite honestly. I mean, I know they intend well, but it's not my thing because you can only talk through so much. You've got to feel through stuff. You need to have homework action based things that will process all of this. Right. You could talk till you're blue in the face and it's, it's not going to make that much of a difference if you can't go deep into all of it. And if you're not safe to share those dark sides and those shadows and those thoughts that are scary, then you can't ever heal. And so what, what that therapist said to you was the idea of, or you haven't accepted your reality because you feel these things. Why does that? That's just crazy. In my opinion, it's both things. And almost every person I've ever talked to that has children experiences it. And anybody who's not lying has experienced it, in my opinion, because it, it's part of motherhood and fatherhood. It's part of raising children and because it, it's way harder than any of us ever thought. And it doesn't mean you haven't accepted your reality. It's I accept my reality and sometimes I hate it. I love my reality and sometimes I want to burn the house down. I love my children and sometimes I want them to be gone and I want freedom and I want to take care of myself and not have to take care of everyone else. And I want to know what it's like to have a hobby again. And I want to know what it's like to like take care of my own stuff and not have to be the nurse, the nanny, the chef, the cleaner, the, uh, you know, the entertainer, the, all of those things. And I love my kids and I cherish the process of raising them. And I hate it. It's an and not an or. And anybody who tries to make you feel otherwise, in my opinion, is very dangerous. And is guilty of the, the spiritual bypassing, which is again, understandable because it's what we've been taught. Um, but so long as we segment it that way, we will have such intense levels of guilt and shame, right? And it's one of the reasons the women that come to me are so grateful to be in my office is because I let them say all of it. And I, every time I just validate it, I'm like, I know. Yep, totally. Absolutely. And I just make them feel so totally normal for wanting to sometimes, you know, not have their children because it is totally normal. It's just that we live in this society where you're not supposed to say the truth. And, you know, especially here where we live, there's a lot of, you know, trying to one up in the motherhood sense. And like, you know, you have to have your nails done and you need the suburban and you need the this and this and that and look like you have the perfect life or you're failing. And those are the most miserable women that I see. Um, and it's heartbreaking. Um, and when you have created a space with them where they can say that truth that you just said so beautifully, Anita, where you can just be like, you know, I hate it sometimes. And sometimes I don't want them to be here. And sometimes I feel like they'd be better off with someone else. I think every mom feels that way sometimes, honestly, like, how did I get this job? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to mess this kid up. Me and my partner, we always joke like, well, we're messing our kids up anyways. It's just like, it's inevitable. This is part of parenting is that you're going to mess them up because we don't know what we're doing. We're going to hopefully do better than our parents and they're going to do better than us. And and that'll keep getting passed on, but none of them came with a manual, nor were we given them the manual. And if you didn't have good examples, especially then you don't have the manual. And if you plan to do it with a partner, 
and that partner was taken from you. And all of a sudden you're left to do it by yourself when you never intended to do that and would have never signed up for it willingly. How could you not be angry? How could you not sometimes not want them to be there? How could you not wonder if they shouldn't be there and would be better off somewhere else? Those are the normal thoughts. Those are the completely sane thoughts that we've been made as a culture to believe that those are the crazy ones and that those mean you haven't accepted your reality. And that's a lie. That's a dangerous lie. Those are the ones that need to be held and need you to write them down. You need to write like the nastiest letter ever to the universe about all of that. Put it on paper and then watch how much room starts to get created inside of you. And then watch how fast you'll learn that the anger is really just the mask. And so long as you let it have its righteous place in your life where you'll create a little time, you'll carve out a little time to let it talk to you. And what do you need? How can I process you? What do you need me to do? What do you need to say? What do you need to be heard? You'll learn that it's really just the mask for the grief. Mic drop. I'm glad to find out that I'm not insane (laughs) because honestly, sometimes I really do feel insane. Like literally I feel, and I don't use that word lightly because my husband hated it. (laughs) He was an English teacher and he was always like made terrible fun of people who use the word literally. But sometimes I really do feel like I'm going insane. Um, And I'm going to write a letter to the universe. I'm about to take my son to therapy and I think I'm going to spend that time writing that letter. Awesome. And then I'm going to have to burn it because if my kids ever read it, they would be like, my mom hates me. Actually, that's a really good, (laughs) right? It's a really good way. Get rid of the evidence. But also there is a beautiful ceremony ceremony type of process in in the burning of it, right? In many cultures, Native American culture is one of my favorites. They're very ritualistic people. That is their process of releasing something to the universe in in a way of honor and in a way of uh, connecting with your ancestors and, and your husband's energy that... Like I'm, I'm offering this, I'm asking for help with this. I am working on processing this and I'm surrendering it. Can you please help me process this? And then start to ask that part of you as you're learning to like, let it come up and have its voice. What do you need next? What do you need now? How can I be with you? And when we learn to do that with all of those shadows, right? So like my rebel shadow, I have to date that shadow regularly or she will literally take over. So like, I have to be naughty. I have to eat naughty food. That's not my regular food. I have to like paint myself in glow yoga, glow in the dark paint and go do glow yoga or go do ecstatic dance. And with all of that not happening with the apocalypse of 2020, I was dancing around naked this morning (laughs) by myself and like really sensual naked crazy dancing like my rebel she needs to be allowed it is a part of me there's a wild child in me I came wired that way and if I overly love that part of myself she's out of balance if I deny that part of myself she's out of balance right so so long as I'm actively allowing that place for her in my life then I just get to have so much fun with it and there's never the sabotage that comes from it And that's true of all of those shadows. All of those parts of us are beautiful and just need to be heard, sat with, write out their feelings, let yourself allow all of those parts of you to talk and have their voice. And then they all stop the sabotaging. And then you'll really, really find that you're safe inside of any level and layer of any emotion, even the really deep grief and loss. Applause, applause, applause. We got nothing. Anita's gonna go do it. Yeah, I'm just like I love it. I can see it on her Whoa. face. She's like, I'm I'm doing it. Whoa. It yeah. was interesting timing. 
that you forgot that the timing of our interview is today. And then we talked about anger and you are so angry and now you're going to change your life. <laughs> now I'm just going to let amazing. myself be angry. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. But really, I just am going to eat some more stuff because that's how I like to cope with my anger. Vegemite? Yeah. I tried it. <laughs> That's our new thing this week is Vegemite. We found some at World I heard Market. It's amazing. We have a bunch of Australian listeners, and so we needed to try it for their benefit. And I tried it yesterday, and it was just salty. Very salty. Salty. So okay. I didn't mind it. I liked it. What did you put it on? Anyway, toast. What did you put it with? I don't okay. know what else. You... It's like a spread. That's what I thought. Just. It might yeah. be good dipped with something yeah. sweet like apples dipped into it. Because isn't it like like a smooth like butter consistency? Yeah. And this morning I ate some more of it and I put toast and then I put Vegemite on it and then I put jam on it. Because I'm a sweet and salty yeah. kind of gal. Me too. I liked it yeah. That's before, why you like too. the macadamias covered in chocolate. Oh, That's very American. So the sweet and salty. <laughs> yeah, totally. I probably oh, totally man. ruined the Australians. <laughs> their thing. But like you did it wrong, like, Anita. You put jam on it. They gave us you all these instructions girl. on how to eat it, and you didn't do any of them. <laughs> I tried. So you tried. You Americanized it. <laughs> I love it. Tessa, thank you for talking to us and like blowing our minds. And now we're like, what? I'm so grateful. You're so welcome. I'm honored too. When Mel asked me to do this, I was like, Melanie, yes. Like, I would love to because. Um, you know, those of us that are willing to speak the truth about the pain and who who have gone and are willing to keep going, it's a never-ending process. If you're alive, you've got to keep doing the work. And if we don't talk about it, even the really hard parts and the ugly parts of it, we won't be able to help other people have the courage to do so. And it was women who did that that uh, were a big part of why I was able to step into doing it myself. So what you guys are doing with this podcast, holding space for all of these widows and all, all of these different types of grief, grieving and trauma stages that people are going through is incredible work. It's an honor to be a part of it. Oh, thank oh, you. Thanks. Oh, we, <laughs> we're like, yay, we got out of bed today. That was, that's all we think I'm about. not wearing a bra yet, you guys. Damn right. Good day. <laughs> Me neither. It's a good day. I barely showered, man. <laughs> yeah. I haven't done that yet. Well, I love that you're willing to help pass on those skills and the knowledge that you've learned. And like you said, speak the truth about the pain because we need a lot more of that. And it doesn't have to be scary. And it also doesn't mean that you are a negative person. It just is what it is. So... Thank you for being here. How can we find you? How can our listeners find you if they want more information about you or to see what you offer? Or maybe just because you told us that you dance around naked in your house sometimes. So people might be interested in that. Maybe they want to have a Zoom party with you. (laughs) Oh, man, we should have an ecstatic dance Zoom party. That sounds amazing. Um, uh, My Facebook page is Tessa Joy. And if you've got Melanie on your Facebook, I'm on hers. And there's probably not a lot of Tessa Joys out there, but I would be on her friend list if you have any trouble finding it. I also have a business page, which is the Quantum Butterfly. Um, I don't go on there nearly as much because my tribe's used to me going um, on, like being on my, my personal page. Um, but you can connect with me either place. And then my email is Tessa at the Quantum Butterfly.com. So... I'd love to hear from any of you and hold space with any of you that um, 
you know, need to need any help speaking out a truth. If you need a good shame partner, I'm, I'm a good person for that because you can say anything to me and there is nothing that I will shame or guilt you about. And so sometimes what is really needed to start doing this work is to say the really ugly, scary, terrible thing in your mind and find out that it's really not nearly as big of a deal as you what think. If- I had murdered somebody though. I mean, how would you? So there's two. (laughs) So as long as you don't ask me to help you like get rid of the body, right. Is always my joke. I'm like, listen, if you already killed somebody, like I don't want to help you get rid of the body. And so long as you're not asking me to do that, we can talk about it. The one thing that I can't hold space for is, um, is child abuse. And meaning like, you know, like sexual child, if you're like coming at me and telling me that you're sexually abusing a child, I'm going to not be able to be the person to hold space for you. Um, But if you're like the person who's like, I smacked my kid and the whole world thinks I'm terrible. Firstly, that's generational. And while none of us want to do that, and some people believe in the spanking and some people don't and the whatever, it's not I don't have your kids, man. It's not my say. It's not my call. But a lot of people are going through like where like I've yelled at my kids and I snuck my kids and I've, I think that someone is going to call child services on me. Where back in the day, like the child services people would have slapped your kid around, right? So like, <laughs> it's just like generational cultural madness. And so you can tell me any of that crazy stuff. You can tell me anything literally and I will hold space with you and be with you and be a safe haven where you can process the things that are haunting you with shame and guilt um because those are the lowest vibrations that there are shame and guilt and they are what paralyze us yeah and then the cops show up at your house and make you feel like they're going to take away your kids too okay that really happened sorry well that's happened yeah that's it it's happened to lots of people because we live in a way more sensitive world right and i mean everybody has their different beliefs on what's right or wrong and and the truth is that um, the world's become like insanely sensitive and um and also those of you especially listening to this have gone through some such incredible layers of pain and grief and loss and your whole world was shattered in front of you that um you're going to not be able to show up as the best person uh the best version of yourself and as somebody who went through seeing a very awful version of myself in my drinking and what i was capable of the layers of selfishness i was capable of It was the people who told me, I know that's not who you really are. I know who you really are. I know that's not who you really are. That saved my life. We are not the bad things we do. We're not the mistakes we make. We're not the, you know, we're not the monster. We're human. We're capable of being Mother Teresa or being Hitler. Both people were human. They did wonderful things and horrific things. We have the capacity for all of it within us. And we sometimes do bad things and that doesn't mean that we are bad. They're not the same thing. And going through the, like being taken off that pedestal for myself was the most humbling thing that I ever went through. And thank God for that dark period of my life, because getting off that pedestal was so unbelievably healing for me. And we all need to get off of the pedestals and we need to take people off of the pedestals around us and be more real and be more honest and, and not having a shame partner in your life is dangerous, in my opinion. So you need at least one person that you can say every terrible, ugly, awful, horrible thing to. Probably not the therapist you try to need. Yeah, you need somebody in your life that you can do that with. No, it's funny. I have a friend who has four kids um, also, and she and I, she just moved though, which makes me so mad. But um, we used to every Thursday night go and I would like, I was like, I feel like I can tell her all of the things 
because I knew that she was having the same thoughts. And so I could tell her all those things and not worry about her being like, you're a terrible mother. She'd be like, Mm -hmm. yes. And I did the same thing. Yeah. And the (laughs) truth is, it really is most women, most of these women from all different walks of my life that I see, hundreds of them, they're all telling me the same type of thing. And they all think that they're the only one. And they all think that they're terrible, horrible, bad mothers and that they're bad people and bad wives and bad this and bad that. And I'm always just like, oh, that's just totally normal, man. That's just like part of it. I'm just like, yeah. You're not special. I hate to tell you. And you know what? That was really a free thing for me. My brother is amazing. And he had been been sober for years, a few years before I needed to get sober. And I was just telling him like how horribly ashamed I was and like, nobody's going to understand that I even had to go through this because they had me on such a pedestal. And he was like, Tessa, like, get over yourself. You're not unique. Every person who's ever struggled with any type of addiction, which is most people, whether it's their social media or TV, the brave people, the people brave enough to face it and try to release themselves from addiction, your story is not unique to any of them. And so like, you know, get out of your shame cloud. Like this isn't you, you're not the only one, get over yourself. And so that was, was really good for me because it's true in, in all of these things we're ashamed of and guilty of is that we're not the only ones. We're not alone in it. And it is the feeling of isolation in it that makes us hide from ourselves and hide it from the world and makes us feel terribly alone. And I believe that to be one of the, the biggest causes of suicide and such deep depression is the feeling of isolation inside of uh, our own insanity. We all have it. And if we just learn to embrace it more in ourselves and each other and normalize it in a sense, right? If we normalize the dark stuff, if we make it so that it's just like, yeah, man, of course you want to run your kids over today. Duh, you're a mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to happen. You know, if that's the, if we can be that real with each other, all of us can start to hold space for healing at a whole nother level for each other and for this whole planet. Yeah, they, I think, first of all, you need to take over our podcast because this is all the wisdom <laughs> or start your own. But we really appreciate you being here. I know that your schedule is so busy, so we really extra appreciate you spending that time Thank with you. us. And for letting us know about all your awesomeness, like naked dancing oh, and throwing plates and paint room. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. plants. Yeah, we can see in Tessa's in house and she has amazing plants. I love your, is that an anthurium? plant nerd. Yeah, the Anthurium is the queen. Oh, man, she is the true goddess of the house. She is amazing. She blooms nonstop all year, even though they say that that's impossible. She's like, whatever, I'll show you impossible. She is the, she rules the roost. She's like, don't give me boundaries. I make my own boundaries. Right? So funny. <laughs> right? She's the honey badger. And she's naughty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's so awesome. Um, join us on our next podcast. We hope you found this one really interesting and that you're giving yourself a little bit of space and to think about maybe the monster that's inside of you that isn't a bad monster, but is in fact a good little monster. There are no good or bad. Yeah. And we will link to all of Tessa's information in the show notes too. So you can have access to her. Yep. Remember to join the Widow Wives Club if you're a widow or just follow our Facebook page if you're a non-widower, widower. Think about joining our Patreon to keep the podcast going, whatever this thing is called. (laughs) Patreon.com slash WWDN. And until then, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. I'm Tessa. And we're just two young widows and the lady who has made our monsters be okay. We're just trying to figure out... Widow, Widow, we we do do now. now.
This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks, and so you don't have to pay extra for that, and you still get great service. Yep, Anita and I have traveled all over, and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it, and my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan, and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not. Who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.